It's July 1994. Two men are lounging by a hotel swimming pool in Orange County, California. They're both part of the US men's national soccer team that had spent weeks being cheered on by the whole country competing in the biggest tournament on the planet, the World Cup. After a respectable showing, they'd been eliminated by the mighty Brazil. And now, here they were, by the pool, a bit dazed because it was all over. We were all wondering, where does our future lie? What are we going to do? That's Eric Winelda, the team star striker. The United States plucky showing at the 94 World Cup had changed how he and his teammates were now seen. Before the tournament, only a few American soccer players had truly been able to earn a living as professionals. But now, American players were the world's hot new fad. Many were headed overseas, to Italy, to England. Eric would be heading back to Germany to play with a club team and become part of a culture that actually worships soccer players. But remember, there were two guys at that pool, Eric Winalda and Steve Sampson. You know, Steve was our assistant coach uh, at the time. And I had known Steve through my collegiate experience. And I liked the guy. And I, I, I was worried about him to a certain extent. And he looked... Worried because? Well, because I know what my story is. I've got to get on a plane and go back to Europe. And I wanted to know what his aspirations were. And my question to him was, what happens to you now? His answer was, I still love coaching. And I wanted to do that. Steve Sampson wanted to be a pro coach. Really? He had less than two years' experience as an assistant on the national team. He'd never had coached or even played at the professional level. But more than that... He was American. It was ludicrous. This is American Fiasco. This is American Fiasco, the show that serves as a reminder to be careful what you wish for by that hotel swimming pool, because you might just get it. I'm Roger Bennett. Yeah. Are you okay? I'm great. I couldn't be better. Perfect. I'm with Steve Sampson. Hi. This is a a pilgrimage. I'm sitting with the Steve Sampson at his office in San Luis Obispo, California. Tell me about your background, your playing career, ended with a torn cartilage. That's correct. That's amazing that you even know that. I've uh, got a PhD in Steve Sampson. Well, <laughs> no, I'm genuinely so giddy. Um, I was a recent graduate of uh, Stanford University with a master's degree, and lo and behold, got an offer to go and work at UCLA as assistant coach, and um, I was making a sum total of uh, $1,250 for the season. And I lived on a friend's couch and used a three chest of drawers for all my belongings and all your worldly goods fit into three drawers absolutely everything and maybe a bag or two that were (laughs) thrown around their uh their living room which i'm sure they didn't enjoy but that's what you have to do in order to get those kinds of opportunities those kinds of opportunities meaning college head coach a yearly salary of around 42 grand and a chance to win the ncaa men's soccer coach of the year award 
which Steve accomplished in 1989. For the point of view of the rest of the world, being the best college soccer coach in America was a bit like having the best teeth in England. Let's be honest, the competition wasn't exactly the stiffest. Now, Steve had a friend, Alan Rothenberg, a lawyer and sports entrepreneur. And around the same time, Alan was running for president of the US Soccer Federation. US Soccer, that's the organisation that oversees the game in its various forms across the country. Youth leagues, the Olympic team, men's and women's national teams. If a ball's being kicked, US Soccer oversees it. Rothenberg took Steve out the night before the election, which he won, and asked him a question, just like Eric Winalda would years later by the pool. Steve, what do you want to do? And, and laughingly, seriously, not seriously, uh, I said to Alan, oh, I want to be the national team coach. And so, right then and there, Alan made Steve the national team coach. I'm kidding. Of course that's not what happened. So they made me special assistant to the chief executive officer. So an office, an office job. It was an office job, but a very important office job. So if I were to parachute back into that time and said, you will be the U.S. coach at a World Cup before you know it, would you have believed me? No. No, of course not. Now, here's something you've got to understand. At that time in America, only foreign-born managers would be considered for the national team coaching job. They had training, they had experience that they gleaned from coaching overseas that had granted them the skills you needed to be a top-flight manager. PR, motivational strategy, human psychology, sports science, crisis negotiation, data analysis. Here, soccer was still so green in the US, coaches hadn't acquired any of that. Plus, there was a mystique to foreign coaches that Americans revered. Every game you learn something. For this, the game is so exciting. One such coach was Bora Milutinovic. He was from Serbia, and he had a specialty, which was to take underperforming teams and turn them into overachievers. That was all relative, of course. The Mexican crowd want the game over, and it is. Just ask Mexico or Costa Rica. Bora coached them both. Neither of those teams came close to a final but they also didn't humiliate themselves. The US had hired Bora to spin that same alchemy at the 94 World Cup. It was this strange way that he talked to you that ultimately did make sense. Alexi Lalas. But you had to go in a lot of weird ways in order to get there. I likened him to this mixture of both Yoda and Yogi Berra. I've always said it's important to know how you win. And when you win. He walked in. My name is Bora. Biore. Bora. Marcelo Balboa, a defender. You put your shoes on, just like Germans do. Right foot, left foot, it doesn't matter. You put them on, you tie them. You put on your socks the same way. You put on your shorts the same way. Now why can't you do that on the field and compete with them? Now, as much as US soccer fell under the thrall of Bora's idiosyncratic methodology, or maybe because of it, it began to feel uncomfortable that his coaching staff was 100% European-born. There needed to be an American on the staff, someone who could be their eyes and ears, someone who was already in the organisation, a company man. Wait, 
I think we all know a man who fits that description. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. Steve Sampson became one of Bora's assistant coaches for the next two years. And the times that you learn the most from Bora isn't necessarily on the field. It's when you're having dinner with him and he brings out the board and all of a sudden, you know, the, he's got all the pieces and he's, he's making drawings on the board and he's saying, well, what, do you, what would you do in this situation? And uh, you could be right a thousand times over and, and the reality is, is that he would come up with a scenario where you were wrong. It was literally getting a doctorate degree in football with one of the top, you know, coaches in the world. Bora drilled into the Americans a particular mentality. Slow the game down, control the game, and when you get your chance, you have to capitalize on that. And that's what we did. As a defender, Marcelo Balboa's job was to repel all comers. And Bora's strategy, that prioritized his position. Our system was simple. Our system was move the ball. If you have to clear the ball, 60 yards of the field, clear it. If you got to put it out of bounds in the parking lot, put it in the parking lot. Eventually, they're not going to shift. You're going to find a gap, and we exploit it. Minimize risk. Always. There's no risk. You cannot take a risk. And it was with this strategy, take no risks, safety first, second, and third, that ultimately brought the team what Bora had promised, reasonable success at the 94 World Cup. The US hadn't been humiliated. They'd made it past the first round. And for Bora, that was mission accomplished. Another notch on his belt which meant it was time to move on in search of his next turnaround project. But he'd left the team with a taste of victory. And now US soccer wanted to do in the next World Cup what Americans do in every sport, apart from soccer, which is win the whole damn thing. But first, they did need a new coach. I interviewed Carlos Queiroz, very famous Portuguese coach, national team, Sporting Lisbon. Carlos Alberto Pereira, a winner of a World Cup. Hank Steinbrecher was U.S. Soccer's Secretary General at the time. Well, we were going to go around the world and try to hire the best uh, best coach that, that we possibly can. So you're going after the big dogs. We were going after the big dogs. And then I get the phone call asking me if I would be willing to be the interim national team coach. What made Steve Sampson the ideal interim then? Um, he was there. He was essentially available. He was available at the time when we needed it. As an Englishman, allow me to interject. Giving the national team job to a bloke who'd never head coached a single pro game before, even on an interim basis, in a country whose soccer culture was so raw, we didn't know what we didn't know. That could only happen in America. But God damn it. I grew up watching underdog American movies. Rocky. Rudy, oh, Ralph Macchio and the Karate Kid. Steve Sampson becoming coach was the first time I saw one of those stories unfold before my very eyes. All right. Steve Sampson's inherited the national team. Oh, but it still bore the imprint of the outgoing head coach, the mystical Serbian Bora, a bloke who kept that team afloat by keeping it on the defence. Steve had other ideas. Suddenly you're the head coach, no pro experience. 
What did you say to the players the first time you spoke to them? What was your message? So one of the things I wanted to bring to the national team was this attitude of we're going to attack, we're going to take risks going forward, but when we transition from offense to defense, we're going to work our tail off to defend and close down, and we're going to press higher up the field, and we're not going to drop in and, and, and play a, in a very low-pressure, compact way. We are going to take the game to the opponent. You called it forward-mindedness. That's correct. That's, that's the term that I use, you know. Um, playing to win as, a play, as opposed to playing not to lose. The uh, American way. The American way. Very quickly, I think all of us said, oh, thank God, it's a breath of fresh air. That's Alexi Lalas. Bora micromanaged absolutely everything. And for some of us, we needed that, but at a, at a certain point, it also got to a point where we wanted to kind of be, be left to our own devices and to kind of learn it for ourselves. Soccer is a player's game. Steve, still interim coach, knew his influence would only go so far. You can't call a timeout and say, hey boys, pay attention to this detail, or call a timeout to destroy the rhythm of the opponent. That's why players on the field have to be reactive, responsive, in the moment, and, and react appropriately, because a coach can't call a timeout. Steve gave us an open door freedom to say, go and express yourself. Midfielder. John Hawks. Which was great, you know, and we wanted that. We needed that. Steve was very hands-off. Eric Winalda, a man born to be a striker, the forward who patrols the opponent's goal, desperate to carry the scoring burden. We decided in a very tight, you know, knit group of guys that, that, uh, that we knew exactly what we were capable of, and we had a coach in Steve Sampson that was willing to let us do that. He was all about allowing guys to have personality and allowing us to, to, to not run the show. We, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, but very inclusive. I know it might seem strange that a once wide-eyed Boy Scout, Steve Sampson, the admirer of Bora, is tearing up the Bora playbook at the first opportunity. But keep this in mind. Every single interim coach in the history of interim coaches uses the same old trick. Whatever your predecessor did, simply do the exact opposite. So if the old guy used to shout XX, you say YY. It's a simple way to prove your mettle, to differentiate yourself, make a name, maybe, just maybe, get a shot at the job and grab the whole enchilada. Steve had a philosophy, which I thought was really great. Uh, he said, we're Americans. We don't fight our battles on our ground. That's Hank Steinbrecher, your Secretary General of U.S. Soccer. We fight our battles in the other person's territory. So we're a very attack-minded culture, and that's exactly how we're going to play. We're not going to say we're a lousy team. We're going to park the bus. We're going we're to say we're as good as anybody in the world, and we're going to come out and we're going to come down your throat. I have a son who's a Navy SEAL, okay? He wears a flag on his uniform that he's ready to die for. It represents the Constitution of the United States, which is something that we are very proud of. And when you put on the United States uniform, there's a flag on your chest, right over your heart. And you need to transform yourself when you step off the touchline and onto the pitch. You need to transform yourself to perform at a much higher level and give everything that this son of mine is willing to give. And we're trying to develop an American soccer culture. 
And I, Steve got that. Steve understood that. He knew what it meant to be an American playing for the American team. But back to our story. And six weeks after Sampson had become the interim coach, it was time for the US Cup. Games which are so-called friendlies, just exhibition matches. Winning here, that wouldn't help America climb the mountain of World Cup qualification, but it might, just might help Steve Sampson build the case to keep his job. If you ask the players about the US Cup, their memories default to the game against Mexico. That national team who'd saved the opportunity to torment the US in a long lopsided rivalry. Obviously, I was, you know, super focused, super nervous. Mexico had been so dominant uh, for so long. I'd shaved my head and I looked like a very angry person that that, that was was ready for that game. We've got an opportunity to show the world and, and show, you know, the U.S., Mexico, everybody that we, we, we want respect. We want to win. We want to win, but we don't win all that much in truth. Since 1934, Mexico and the U.S. had sent their best soccer players into battle 35 times, and the U.S. had only emerged victorious on four of those occasions. So on June 18, 1995, for that U.S. Cup game, the Americans took to the field at RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., in front of 38,000 people and to the ears of the U.S. players. It sounded like roughly 37,999 of those were there to cheer for Mexico. Here's goalkeeper Casey Keller. I mean, Roger, we can play as the men's U.S. national team in a lot of cities against a lot of teams, and there's more support for the away team than there is for the home team. To me, few things illustrate more perfectly the extent to which Americans did not care about soccer back then. I mean, the game was so unpopular that whomever the US played, the bulk of the fans who came out to cheer either came from those countries or had families there, and their loyalties were with the teams from back home. This segment of the game is presented commercial-free by MasterCard, and we are underway, the United States against Mexico. The referee blows his whistle, the ball's kicked off. Time for the Americans to unfurl their new approach. Steve Sampson's forward-mindedness. Alexi Lalas remembers the moment. Steve was letting us go forward, not with reckless abandon, but with a whole lot more joy and fearlessness than we had had in the past. Our team was attacking the Mexican back line and getting in behind and creating one shot after another. Just 174 seconds into the 90-minute game. Yellow cards as quickly now, the United States, that's Wagerly. Great chance, scores! USA! The Americans had just scored in less time than it takes to buy a bird at the concession stand. I was literally shocked. This was the first time that we came into a game and uh, we were playing with with, with anger, we were playing with focus, and and we were not going to bow down. The ambush continued. Here comes Dooley. Dooley scores! USA! Thomas Dooley! When midfielder Thomas Dooley barreled through the Mexican defense and doubled America's lead, he was so shocked he didn't even know how to celebrate properly. You can see him on the footage from the game. 
He just looks around awkwardly, charges towards the corner flag, and before he gets there, belly flops head first onto the turf in glee. Casey Keller back in the American goal had little to do but look on in wonder at the spectacle unfolding at the other end of the field. Just the great goals, great crosses, great I mean, just great play from start to finish. You know, it was it was really a complete performance against your biggest rival, you know, knowing that you were able to kind of shut up a crowd that you know wasn't coming there to support you in your own country. I vividly remember Alexi Lalas. Almost it was the fulfillment of something that we had believed for for so long and yet had had not been able to to manifest in like a single moment and this was that moment. What went right that day? Everything. Midfielder John Hawks. Momentum, positive energy, uh, belief in ourselves, this feeling that we were in the nation's capital. And there was this, this patriotism about us. There was this spirit, this underbelly of like we were growing. Whether it's right or wrong, or it's naive, but we were just like, bring it on, let's go. Hawks' chance would come in the 36th minute. Gets the pass from Kobe Jones. And Ronaldo still dribbling. The shot, the save, the follow, the score! Hawks, John Hawks! This was a goal that I remember watching live at home, which was then Chicago. The US, 3-0 up against Mexico with barely a third of the game gone. This was like science fiction, beautiful science fiction. I felt as astonished as a crow watching an elephant fly. There's Hartsey winning the battle for the loose ball and knocking in three. I tell you, I would never have predicted 3-0 after 36 minutes in this game. The half-time whistle blew and the players headed towards the locker rooms. Winalda, exhilarated, emotional, he's boiling over. And they're all the, the delegates from the Mexican Federation were coming onto the field and Hank Steinbrecher was trying as hard as he could to hold it in, but he was beaming with pride. And I just went after it just essentially said, you know why we're beating them? Because we're better than they are. I'm looking right at their federation. You're looking at the Mexican federation? Yeah, and I'm saying, we're better than you now. And deal with it. And, and I, 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 I remember Hank basically saying, politically incorrect, but I'm with you, kid. The truth was right there for everyone to see up on the scoreboard. The U.S. were better than Mexico. And it was just total dominance from the first minute to the 90th minute. Any hope the Mexicans had of forcing their way back into the game dissipated in the 67th minute. Oh, such a good game. Oh, nice on to Reina. Reina, the shot, the score! USA, Claudio Reina! The cameras cut to the sidelines to find Steve Sampson thrusting both hands into the air with fists of triumph. Despite the gesture, he was unable to mask the look on his face. It was one of sheer astonishment. Can't believe he's had to fish the ball out of his own net four times against the United States. And he's pretty embarrassed. It's a great uh, backflick by Dooley. That's it. The United States and head coach Steve Sampson have defeated Mexico four to nothing on a sunny afternoon here in our nation's capital. Their second win in U.S. Cup. 90. You, Eric Winalda of Fullerton, California 
After the game, you tell the media we have a great deal of respect for Steve Sampson. We're playing for him. Because did, you, did you mean that? At yes, time? at that at that moment in time, I felt that that you know Steve had embraced the role. This was a guy that, at his core, could understand where where most of us were coming from. He had a background in American soccer. This guy was, for lack of a better phrase, one of us. A background in American soccer. That should have been the opposite of what you were looking for back then. On paper, Steve still should never have been the head coach. But there he was. No longer the unemployed guy by the side of the pool. Steve was winning. And his team was about to head to a foreign continent and take on all comers and smite them. It was almost biblical. Within 15 weeks, the word interim was removed from Steve Sampson's title. In a way, was Steve like the placeholder that wouldn't let go of his place? Yeah, I mean, he was tenacious as all hell. You know, when I had to pinch myself was when I went back home and I was greeted by my three young children and my wife in a home that wasn't mine, living with my in-laws. Um, and in that moment, I said, what the hell just happened? I've just spent the most magnificent summer living a dream, quite frankly. Um, and to be offered to be the, the national team coach, and then I was able to tell my wife, we can move back to Agoura Hills and actually buy a home now. We don't have to live with our in-laws. I can't tell you how excited I was about that. And to give her the opportunity to basically say, where do you want to live? Did it, you know he was living with his mother-in-law? His mother-in-law? No, no idea. Hank Steinbrecher. He, he, he couldn't afford a, uh, his own home. He'd moved his whole family in with his in-laws. I can believe that. He said the day you gave him a full-time contract, he walked home to his wife and said, we can move anywhere you want. <laughs> Not under the terms that I negotiated. <laughs> American Fiasco is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Joel Meyer, Emily Botine, Paula Schumann, Derek John, Starley Kine, Keegan Zemma, Ernie Intradat, Eliza Lambert, Jameson York, Daniel Guimet, Matt Boynton, Jonathan Williamson, Brad Feldman, B. Aldridge, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, and Sarah Sandbach. Joe Plourd is our technical director. Hannes Brown composed our original music. Our theme music is by Big Red Machine, the collaboration between Aaron Desner of The National and Justin Vernon of Bon Iver. Audio in this episode, courtesy of ABC Sports and NPR. For more about this story, including a timeline and more, go to fiascopodcast.com. This is Rog. If you like this podcast, recommend it to your friends, especially your soccer curious friends who are starting to fall in love with the sport during the World Cup. This podcast guaranteed to put them over the top. Courage. <laughs>